from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. 1619 is still cited as the year that enslaved Africans first arrived in the United States, but a new epic book gives more evidence to the contrary. Instead of Virginia and Massachusetts as sort of the founding sites of settler colonialism that lead to the United States, it really should be Florida and New Mexico. We spend the hour talking with historian Gerald Horn about the dawning of the apocalypse of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism not 400 years ago, but 500 years ago. They're raising this fundamental question of settler colonialism, two words that have been remarkably and conspicuously absent from the vocabulary of too many on the left. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, this week, D.C. was the place where the country's uprising against racism was even acknowledged at the virtual Democratic National Convention. On Monday night, Mayor Muriel Bowser was broadcast giving a speech above Black Lives Matter Plaza and condemning Donald Trump for the violent deployment of federal troops on peaceful protesters back in June. But like so much at the four-day convention, Bowser's comments told only part of the story. Not only, as we have reported on this show, are district police also being sued for taking part in those same attacks on protesters. D.C. protesters are still being illegally kettled, sometimes brutalized by police, and then saddled with felony charges for peaceful protests. Journalist Chuck Modiano, who has been on the ground at D.C. protests, described on WPFW's The Collision what is happening now that corporate media is providing no coverage of the protest movement. It's related to the Democratic Convention, particularly the first day when we were hearing um, from the D.C. mayor a dichotomy between Trump's America, which is horrific, by the way, and maybe what is going on in D.C. And 41 individuals were kettled and arrested on bogus felony riot charges. They were indiscriminately kettled. There were 15 medics involved. There were journalists involved. There were people carrying wagons involved. And the next day, those charges were dropped because they were bogus charges. But what, what it is, is a way to ID protesters, is a way to fingerprint protesters, and is a way to take people's phones. No one has received mm. their phone back. And in addition to that, three individuals in re- after the kettling were charged with assault on police officer. And we have video, and I took one of those videos. And those are bogus charges, too, but they're felony charges. And I say that to say we have to juxtapose that to what we hear about what Trump is doing, and it's happening locally, not just in D.C., but in Portland, but in Chicago, but in New York City. D.C. activists also held another protest at the home of Mayor Miral Bowser on August 15th about what they described as wretched conditions at public facilities in D.C. for the homeless. Now, in battle, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is scheduled to testify before the Senate today on August 21st 
and before the House on Monday, August 24th. The emergency hearings were called because of DeJoy's operational changes, increased delivery delays, and concerns about the ability of voters to use mail-in ballots in November. But two more postal scandals erupted this week. On Wednesday, a government watchdog group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, obtained documents confirming that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was involved in selecting DeJoy, who has ties to competitors to the Postal Service. And on Thursday, the former vice chairman of the U.S. Postal Service's Board of Governors accused Mnuchin of trying to engineer a hostile takeover of the service. Activists are also responding to the crisis. The Poor People's Campaign is linking failure to protect the Postal Service to the failure of the Senate to pass the next pandemic relief bill called the HEROES Act, which is also providing funding for the post office. At a virtual Moral Mondays rally, the Reverend William Barber called for the public to again flood the office of Senate Leader Mitch McConnell with phone calls, even though McConnell was on vacation. Thousands and thousands of people have called in to shut down Mitch McConnell's office and to challenge him, challenge him to pass a just and a compassionate Heroes Act and Cares Act to stop hurting people, stop hurting poor people and low-income people and working people and people without health care. And today, we're going to call on him to, to fix what's going on with the United States Post Office. The, he could stop it. It's not Trump and his uh, secretary, his crony alone. Mitch McConnell, as the majority leader, has the power, majority leader of the Senate, to stop it. He and Nancy Pelosi to join together and stop it. Also on Sunday, August 23rd, Shut down D.C. climate strike. Washington, D.C. is holding a demonstration and go-go concert outside the home of the Joy in Northwest D.C. Another public institution, public schools, are also in the crosshairs of the Trump administration which is still pushing for in-person instruction, despite the fact that districts do not have safety standards in place. Thomas O'Rourke has more. Panelists and attendees from the D.C. region and around the country convened online Saturday, August 15th, for the purpose of answering an existential question that concerns all of American education. Is there a way to open this school year safely? The Washington Teachers Union sponsored a virtual town hall that drew educational experts, leaders, and practitioners asking, can we get this right? Meanwhile, four states, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, and Mississippi, have already opened in-person classes despite high infection rates and have subsequently seen large COVID spikes forcing thousands in those states to quarantine and some schools to close. New York City's Teachers Union, the United Federation of Teachers, with 75,000 members, declared its intention to strike if its health and safety concerns are not addressed before in-person classes begin on September 10. Meanwhile, most large urban school districts have opted for virtual over in-person classes until later this year at the earliest. Randy Weingart, president of the American Federation of Teachers, detailed the current thinking of the Teachers Union leadership when she said the following. You know, CDC said you have to have community spread under 5%. You have to have a daily transmission rate under 1%. 
That's going to tell you what's going on in the virus in the community. You have to have a testing, tracing, and isolation system so that, you know, if, if there is a spike, like in one of those schools in Georgia, you know, to close down immediately, you know, to trace immediately so a spike does not become a surge. And then in schools itself, you have to do what I call the big six, which is mass and physical distancing, cleaning and ventilation, obviously hand washing and reasonable accommodation for those who are high risk. If you can't do those things, obviously also create confidence of parents and teachers that that these can be enforced and that they are safe and have the money to do it. If you can't do those basically eight things, then you can't reopen a school. Elizabeth Davis, president of the Washington Teachers Union, spoke about what was happening in the District of Columbia regarding efforts to ensure educational equity across D.C. during the pandemic, as well as some of the history of educational inequity here in the district. We want to get it right in reopening. We're glad that our city and school district leaders decided to delay reopening in person. And the time that we have to get it right between now and then, ensuring that community spread is under control, that we're flattening the curve. We've got to do all of that, ensuring that the digital divide has been addressed, that families will have the support they need, but also to ensure that we're gonna provide the social and emotional support to students, their families, and teachers due to a lot of the trauma that teachers and students experience during this pandemic. Frederick Ingram, president of the Florida Education Association, gave some background information describing Florida as today being the worldwide center of the COVID pandemic. For On the Ground Radio, this is Thomas O'Rourke. And finally, in culture and media, attorneys defending jailed WikiLeaks editor Julian Assange were given until today, August 21st, to decide if they will agree with a request from the prosecution to delay his September 7th hearing in London on charges related to his exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Meanwhile, a group of independent international legal observers of the Assange case, called Lawyers for Assange, has written the British government outlining his illegal treatment and demanding his release. The letter begins, quote, We write to you as legal practitioners and legal academics to express our collective concerns about the violations of Mr. As- Mr. Julian Assange's fundamental human, civil, and political rights and the precedent his persecution is setting. We call on you to act in accordance with national and international law, human rights, and the rule of law by bringing an end to the ongoing extradition proceedings and granting Mr. Assange his long overdue freedom. Freedom from torture, arbitrary detention and deprivation of liberty, and political persecution. End quote. Among the charges of illegal government conduct, are that 1. Assange's potential extradition to the U.S. is a political persecution, 2. the government's multiple violations of press freedoms and the public's right to know, 3. violations of the right to be free of torture and the right to health and to life, and 4. Assange's right to a fair trial being jeopardized by clear evidence of covert U.S. interference and surveillance at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, of Assange's legal team, his papers, and legal conversations with his political, legal, and media contacts. 
If you want more information about updates on Assange's case, you can go to lawyersforassange.org and also consortiumnews.com is covering his case. In history this week, 189 years ago today, on August 21st, 1831, Nathaniel Nat Turner led a rebellion of enslaved people in Southampton County, Virginia. Marcus Garvey was born August 17, 1887 in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica. On August 21st, 1983, Filipino opposition leader Benigno Aquino Jr. was assassinated at Manila Airport while leaving his plane. Public outcry over the killing ultimately led to the collapse of the U.S.-backed puppet government of Ferdinand Marcos and the inauguration of Corazon Aquino widow of the slain man, as president. And on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, granting women the right to vote. And on Tuesday, August 18, 2020, the Coalition of Labor Women held a candlelight vigil near the White House to commemorate the suffragists who fought for that right. D.C. Labor Chorus member, Susan McNeil sang her rendition of America the Beautiful with change lyrics to say Black Lives Matter. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, August 2019 saw numerous commemorations of the year 1619, when what was said to be the first arrival of enslaved Africans in North America. Yet in the 1520s, the Spanish from their imperial perch in Santo Domingo had already brought enslaved Africans to what was to become South Carolina. So begins the preview for the newest book by historian Gerald Horn, titled The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. The preview continues, Gerald argues forcefully that in order to understand the arrival of colonists from the British Isles in the early 17th century, one must first understand the long 16th century from 1492 until the arrival of settlers in Virginia in 1607. During this prolonged century, Horn contends, whiteness morphed into white supremacy and allowed England to co-op not only religious minorities, but also various nationalities throughout Europe. 
thus forging a muscular block that was needed to confront rambunctious indigens and Africans. In retelling the bloodthirsty story of the invasion of the Americas, Horn recounts how the fierce resistance by Africans and their indigenous allies weakened Spain and enabled London to dispatch settlers to Virginia in 1607. These settlers laid the groundwork for the British Empire. And I'll add that the history recounted in this book precedes what Gerald describes in his other books that we've discussed on this show about the actual apocalypse of settler colonialism, which really ramps up in the 1600s or 17th century. Gerald Horn is a professor of African American history at the University of Houston and the author of more than three dozen books, the latest of which we're going to explore with him today. And of course, listeners know Gerald as on the grounds geopolitical analyst. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Well, thank you. So traveling this far back in history in this book to the 16th century or the 1500s for folks like me who need to keep it straight, it reminded me of 1992 when so many of us were involved in opposing the quincentennial celebrations marking 500 years since the arrival of Christopher Columbus to this hemisphere. And how, for so many of us, it was the first opportunity to do like mass re-education about the truly barbaric, genocidal reality of Columbus. You know, mass murder, torture, rape of the indigenous population when he sailed the ocean blue, which is what we all learned in school. And so I was actually a part of a traveling jazz opera production with the late Fred Ho and the Afro-Asian music ensemble. And the production was called Turn Pain Into Power which was called a counter quincentennial opera. And so now I'm looking at the world we are in today, 30 years later, after that 500 year historic or inglorious marker. And it feels like a reckoning, like this is another apocalypse now as a system built on slavery, on genocide and exploitation is crumbling. We see anti-racist protesters who know the history and truth are toppling statues of Columbus around the country, including not far from here in D.C. and Baltimore. And they threw the statue in the Baltimore Harbor there. So tell us about why it is still important to start with Columbus and, you know, remind us of that real history and why, in effect, you start this book about the 1500s in 1492. Well, to add to your litany, it's also remarkable that in Portland, one of the slogans that has been raised is that of stolen people on stolen land. That is to say, enslaved Africans captured on the African continent and stolen and dragged across the Atlantic, and then the stealing of land from the indigenous population. Mm -hmm. I think that your listeners need to see this as a remarkable departure. Because keep in mind that for the longest, the U.S. left, perhaps even some today, have echoed the anthem by the late Woody Guthrie of this land is our land. Whereas now, it seems many activists have moved beyond that in saying, no, this land is their land. And they're raising this fundamental question of settler colonialism two words that have been remarkably and conspicuously absent from the vocabulary of too many on the left. Now, with regard to Christopher Columbus of Genoa and what is now Italy, uh, he was sponsored by uh, the what we would call the Spanish in 1492, 
And as many know, it was not only that he was repeatedly seeking a new route to Asia to basically capture many of the spices and aromatics of places like India and what we would now call Indonesia and the riches of China as well, but also in 1453, in a real turning point in history, the Ottoman Turks ousted the Christians from ruling in what is now Istanbul, then Constantinople, which helped to ignite existential fear in Western European Christendom. And when the Iberians, speaking of the Spanish and Portuguese, began to get in their vessels and sail, for example, westward, in some ways they were fleeing the Muslims who were steadily marching westward and, of course, uh, were ultimately thwarted. My story deals with the people whose legacy we're still grappling with, that is to say, the English, the people whose language that we're now speaking, because it was not so long ago, at least in historical terms, it's a blink of an eye, that is to say, as late as the middle of the 17th century, uh, England was viewed as a minor power on the fringes of Europe. And one of the things that I tried to unravel in this book is how did this minor power on the outskirts of Europe wind up establishing what was called the British Empire, where it was said the sun never sets because it basically circled the globe. And the short answer is to be found in this concept of religion. Recall that it was in 1517 that you had Martin Luther engage in the Protestant secession from what we would call the Vatican or the Roman Catholic Church, establishing the so-called Protestant uh, revolt. And for various reasons, England took up that banner in the 1530s, and that allowed England to, number one, loot and plunder and pillage the Catholics, and it allowed uh, London as well to become embroiled in this ongoing religious conflict with the prevailing and potent Spanish and Portuguese, but mostly the Spanish. And this was a very murderous conflict. The English were the scrapping underdogs, Unlike the Spanish, when they established their settlements in the Americas, they had a religious qualification. You had to be Catholic in order to be a settler. As right. late as the 19th century, when you had Stephen F. Austin and his comrades moving into Tejas, or what we would now call Texas, this is approximately 200 years ago, and this is basically after what we now call Mexico had seceded from the Spanish Empire, uh, they had to profess Catholicism. There were not enough Protestants to go around, and in any case, the English were the scrappy underdogs who were looking for allies, and so they basically changed the game. Uh, they moved from religion as a qualification for exploitation and pillaging and plunder to pan-Europeanism, and this allowed them to co-opt those who they had been warring with, for example, the Irish, particularly the Irish Catholics, once they crossed the Atlantic uh, in English vessels, 
magically they're transmuted into this new identity politics that is whiteness. Or if you look at the Jewish population, the English had expelled the Jewish population in 1291. But once again, once the English embarked on this colonial plunder, uh, they opened their embrace to the Jewish population as well. Now, what's interesting is that I begin the book talking about the fact that many of the tropes that were deployed against the Jewish population, such as a bar on miscegenation, such as a bar on intermarriage, such as this idea, this insult, that supposedly they had a peculiar odor, or that they had tails, they were sort of lifted and employed and deployed against enslaved Africans, against the indigenous population, etc. And so what you see, as you said in your introductory remarks, is that the English steal a march against their Spanish and Iberian competitors by moving away from religion as a qualifier for settlement to pan-Europeanism that morphs into whiteness, that morphs into white supremacy. And so therefore you have the spectacle of those who had been warring on the shores of Europe, not only English versus Irish and Protestant versus Catholic and Christian versus Jewish, but British versus German and German versus Pole and Pole versus Russian and Serb versus Kurat and Slovenian versus Kosovar and Northern Italian versus Southern Italian and French Catholic versus French Protestant. All of a sudden, in a maneuver that would make Madison Avenue blush, uh, they're transmuted magically into this new identity that is whiteness once they cross the Atlantic, and that becomes the winning ticket. Uh, that helps to explain why we, or some of us, are here in North America in the first place, and it helps to explain uh, the turbocharging of what became the British Empire, which came to rule so much of the planet, and whose language is still spoken uh, by hundreds of millions of people. Well, you know, you tell such an epic history of this long 16th century. And as you just mentioned, one way we can simplify some of it is to talk about this this designation of religion versus skin color to establish, you know, who can be a colonizer, who can be a, a citizen or even like a human being. So... I'm wondering if we can, for the listeners, lay out some of the major milestones kind of on the road to developing whiteness in this century. Well, there are so many. First of all, I would be remiss if I did not inject immediately the question of resistance to this entire process, which was massive. But one of the ways that resistance was overwhelmed and overcome is that the English in particular, in order to fight their domestic antagonists, early on developed uh, what is a precursor of a military-industrial complex. In other words, they helped to hone and perfect the industrialization of killing and murder. And that helps to explain why so many indigenous populations were liquidated, why so many Africans were intimidated into slavery. But I should also mention the uh, numbers of indigenous people uh, who revolted 
against not only the English, but against the Spanish, not least in the Caribbean, uh, not least with regard to that, uh, that story you recounted when the Spanish from their perch in what is now Santo Domingo uh, bring enslaved Africans to what is now South Carolina approximately 500 years ago, and the enslaved Africans revolt and ally with the indigenous of what is now South Carolina, and then send the Spanish packing back to the Caribbean. And it's that sort of resistance that in many ways opens the door for the English finally to arrive, as they do in 1607. I should also mention another turning point in terms of African history, uh, which occurs in 1591. Now, keep in mind that one of the reasons why London was oftentimes de designated as perfidious Albion is because they cut a deal with the Muslims against their fellow Christians, speaking of the Catholics. That is to say, not only when they uh, expropriated the Catholics in the 1530s, began to pocket Catholic wealth for themselves, oftentimes they melted down monasteries and shipped the metal to the antagonists of the Catholics, speaking in the Ottoman Turks, so that the Ottoman Turks and the Muslims would be fortified and combating the Catholics. Um, I want to take a little brief break right now. Stay with us. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, about his new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Okay, Gerald, we were going to talk about those milestones in the development of whiteness in the 16th century. 
Well, I was about to talk about what turbocharges white supremacy, mm-hmm. which is the African slave trade. Mm-hmm. And what turbocharges the African slave trade is what occurs in 1591, when once again London allies with Muslims, Moroccans in this instance, to engage in a joint attack on the Songhai Empire, which is a major polity in the heart of Africa, in today's Mali, by the way, which mm-hmm. now is garnering headlines. And what happens is that when the Songhai Empire is defeated, it has negative knock-on effects that cascade and ricochet throughout the continent, uh, softening up a good deal of West Africa for the onrushing African slave trade, which then takes off like a rocket after 1591. Another milestone comes, by the way, in 1565, when the Spanish established their settlement in St. Augustine, Florida. Now, of course, we talk about 1619, but I think even the architects of the 1619 project are now recognized that in terms of settler colonialism and enslaved Africans on what is now the United States, that takes place in 1565 with uh, the establishment of the settlement in St. Augustine, Florida, which, of course, is still there. And by the way, is a very picturesque town, and also, by the way, has very uh, rich archives, uh, which I drew upon to uh, write this book. Now, what's interesting is that when the English decide to sail in to what they call Jamestown, and what they call Virginia, after the so-called Virgin Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth in 1607, the Spanish wanted to attack but they were so busy fighting the indigenous of Florida and their African allies in Florida that they could not muster a detachment or contingent to sail northward from Florida to Virginia to repel the English invasion. And so what's interesting is that one of the reasons why there are so many of We Africans here in North America, uh, speaking English paradoxically and perversely enough, is that our ancestors were so busy fighting the Spanish that we tied down the Spanish, were not able to repel the English, which then allowed them to establish that foothold and then expand not only uh, northward to what they call Massachusetts, but then eventually westward, not only to what is known as California, but then even to the Pacific to form today's United States of America by virtue of incorporating Hawaii uh, approximately uh, 120 years ago. So, in short, uh, that's the story of this book. So, we have the defeat of the Songhai Empire around 1591, and we have the establishment of the uh, St. Augustine settlement in Florida, what is today Florida, and is that 1565? Okay, I think that you mentioned in terms of the resistance of uh, the indigenous people, Hachue, and you talk about him being lifted up really on par with Nat Turner and other people who we remember as, you know, freedom fighters or people who really were fighting against the slaveocracy, the imposition of, of slavery here. So talk about him a little bit. Well, 
this is an indigenous person, apparently with roots in what we would now call Santo Domingo, or what we would now call Hispaniola, who, with a hearty band, winds up in Cuba, where he's fighting the Spanish. He is now considered to be a national hero of Cuba. There is a statue commemorating him that is quite remarkable in Cuba, which brings me to another point, which is that I think those in your audience who may be interested in Cuba history uh, will find many points of interest in this particular book. To return to the question of slavery, it's the English who innovate, if I can use that verb, with regard to slavery, by focusing so tightly on enslaving Africans, but also introducing this racialization process, uh, this process whereby uh, Africans are not necessarily seen as part of the human family, uh, which then is taken to a, a new level uh, by their successors. Speaking of the Declaration of Independence, which talks about all men are created equal, uh, and people oftentimes ask, well, isn't this paradoxical? Or they didn't include the Africans. No, they didn't include Africans as part of the human family. It was totally consistent. And likewise, to bring this closer to the present, this much vaunted First Amendment freedom of religion and religious liberty, oftentimes that's ascribed to what's going on in the brains of these men, such as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. But as I tell the story, this is part of this compromise between once warring Protestants and Catholics and Christians and Jewish populations where they reconcile on the altar of whiteness, allowing a certain kind of religious liberty, which, by the way, did not apply to indigenous religions. Certainly, it did not apply to indigenous African religions, just like the entire Bill of Rights did not necessarily apply to the indigenous population or the African population. The Second Amendment right to bear arms did not apply to the indigenous of the Africans. Because if the Africans had the right to bear arms, believe me, slavery would have ended well before 1865. <laughs> and so you have to see this entire process as a massive exercise, not only in whiteness and white supremacy, but a massive exercise in propaganda that has bamboozled the credulous, even amongst some who dare to consider themselves to be radical, with that credulous process extending, I'm afraid to say, even into the 21st century. So speaking of propaganda, I know that, as you just mentioned, you know, the key feature of the consolidation of whiteness was, of course, slavery in the United States, you know, to literally build the country, to build wealth and what would become a worldwide system of white supremacist capitalist exploitation. And it is your research and groundbreaking thesis that the reason American colonists fought the Revolutionary War was to preserve slavery that undergirds the New York Times 1619 project, which won a Pulitzer for Nicole Hannah-Jones. Of course, your thesis and that project has been attacked. And this is where I'm talking about the propaganda. As far as I know, none of the facts you lay out in your book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, are disputed. But I'm wondering if there are similar objections raised to the fact that you present in this book that we're talking about today, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, 
that you raise facts about the expulsion of Jews from England and Spain and the need of Jewish people to at least feign religious conversion to survive. And then they're fleeing to outposts in Africa and in the New World where they were intimately involved in the slave trade and the colonization of African and indigenous people in the hemisphere. I know I had not read before your book, this book, any detailed history that clearly presented that information for most of my life. You know, any kind of information that presents Jews or Jewish people in a bad light is usually attacked as anti-Semitic. And I'm wondering if there's any pushback on the facts you present. Well, not thus far. And I think it's in due in part is because this book in general provides a critique of Christianity. It provides a critique of Catholicism. It provides a critique of Protestantism. And it provides a critique of Islam as well. And so it would be uh, perhaps ludicrous and absurd for me to provide a critique of all these various re religious terms without including the Jewish population as well. I mean, that would be uh, fairly ridiculous. But to, to get back to the factual record, so in 1492, the Iberians, that is to say the Spanish, they begin to expel the Jewish population. Many of them flee not only to Ottoman Turkey, but also ultimately to these Protestant bastions, speaking not only of London, but also Amsterdam and Rotterdam, because in many ways, the founders of this new system known as capitalism uh, can be found as much in Rotterdam and Amsterdam as they can be found in London. I also suggest that as the Jewish population is being expelled, many of them are on the ship with Columbus himself and therefore are pioneers in the New World. And certainly with regard to the Spanish moving northward into what we now call New Mexico, which happens in the late 1500s. As I tell the story, instead of Virginia and Massachusetts as sort of the founding sites of settler colonialism that lead to the United States, it really should be Florida and New Mexico. And so you had these so-called crypto-Jews, as they're called, or people who are passing, Jewish people who are passing as Christian or passing as Catholic, and they do this because of the Inquisition. The Spanish took religion very seriously, and if you were not Catholic and you professed another faith, uh, you were subject to being tortured at best, liquidated at worst. And so some of the first European invaders combating the indigenous population of what we now call New Mexico were the Jewish folk who were passing were Christian. In fact, I cite a story from the New York Times a year or so ago from folks in New Mexico who, in the privacy and the solitude of their homes, practice what appear to be Jewish rituals, and it is thought that they are descendants of this original population who, of course, were passing as Christian, but then would practice these Jewish rituals in the privacy of their home. But once again, I think that this story, in many ways, provides 
more than a critique of Protestantism and Islam in the first place, which, and therefore, as I, 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 didn't, I don't think I said this in the book, but I'll say it now, that I find it ironic that overwhelmingly and disproportionately uh, black Americans or either Protestant or Muslim, Baptist, Methodist, etc., or some variation of Sunni Islam, when it's the collaboration between Protestants and Muslims, particularly in 1591 with the defeat of the Sunni Empire, that set the stage for the skyrocketing, the turbocharging of the African slave trade, which then deposits so many Africans on these soils, on the soil, to then labor for free for centuries. Well, you're the you're a son of the South, and I think you 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 find it ironic, but you also understand the the I don't know the attraction that people had to stories about the gospel and the stories of Moses and but I guess we can go off on another that's another whole <laughs> that's a whole well that's a whole I mean, you know, look, my, my parents were Christians. Right, I, I, right. I, I consider myself to be what I call a secular Christian in the sense that I was raised on Bible stories. I was raised in the New Testament. Right. I, I went to Sunday school for years. Uh, I tried to uh, ingest many of the ethical and moral stories that are positive uh, of Christianity. But at the same time, I'm a historian. And I have to be true uh, to the record because I don't think we can dig ourselves out of this deep hole in which we find ourselves unless we somehow get a grasp on historical reality. All right. Well, I'm quickly running out of time. But why don't I talk about today? You know, I started this conversation talking about the toppling of Columbus's statues. And I should add probably the statues of Confederate soldiers, the slaveocracy here in this country. And, you know, and past conversations, I've talked about the thing I focus on a lot, which is the climate, you know, and possible, you know, human extinction being the legacy of this 500 years of the development of capitalist exploitation of the earth. We've also talked about, of course, you know, the first black president bringing slavery back to the African continent. But what are your thoughts about other links between this history you lay out about the long 16th century and today? Well, first of all, at the end of the introduction of the book we're talking about, I talk about the transition over the last 500 years from religion being a primary axis of society, whether or not you're Protestant or Catholic or Muslim or Jewish. And then with the English, quote, innovation, unquote, of, quote, race, unquote, that is to say the racialization of Africans who were then forced to labor for free for centuries. And then that process is disrupted by the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804. And then post uh, the abolition of slavery in the United States, you see struggles around class. Uh, The struggle for an eight-hour day, the struggle for trade unions. Then the 20th century, you see the construction of socialist states. And then to come down to today, you see struggles against the 1%, which is fundamentally a struggle for redistribution of wealth and a struggle around class. And I think that you cannot begin to understand not only how we got to this point in 2020 
where we're struggling against the 1% and struggling for wealth taxes in New York State and California and struggling to redistribute the wealth without understanding this prehistory that brought us to this point. And your reference to the 44th U.S. president, I take it, was a reference to current events. That is to say, once again, Mali, recall we were talking about the Songhai Empire in 1591, and we know that as a result of this catastrophic overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya in 2011, led by the 44th U.S. president as NATO allies, who had tons of weapons that leaked into Mali, which then helped to give rise to an insurgency spearheaded by religious zealots, which has taken over two-thirds of the country, and just this week has led to a coup d'etat by the military, and this bids fair to introduce instability in that part of Africa, I'm afraid to say, not unlike the instability that was introduced in 1591 with the defeat of the Songhai Empire, and that's an ironic perversion, I'm afraid to say, of history. Yeah, I guess what I was, I was referring to the overthrow of Gaddafi, and and after that, the instability leading to these open slave markets where black people were being sold again on the African continent. And then dying in the Mediterranean uh, as they're seeking to flee yeah. this charnel house that was created by the United States in 2011. Yes. So the only other thing I thought about was also related to the current uprising against racism, which harkens back to this 500-year epic that you you lay out, is, again, the whole conflict over whose story will be told and who will tell it. Because you have the protesters toppling statues of the Confederate soldiers, you know, defenders of the slaveocracy, toppling statues of Columbus. But then you have the 45th president standing at Mount Rushmore calling the protesters liars and saying that they're lying about our history. They're the, you know, and, and here in DC asking that the statue of Albert Pike, um, a notorious Confederate general be reassembled and put back up. I don't know if that's going to happen. Hopefully not. But you have at this point in history, this 500 year point in history, people still holding on to the propaganda, as you mentioned. And there's a battle right now about history, about facts, about whose history will be told and who will tell it. Well, that's true. And with regard to the acceptance of propaganda, a major theme of some of the works that we've discussed today has been how this, quote, creation, unquote, if you like, of race and racism, in many ways helps to dull class struggle and dull class antagonisms. And I don't think you can begin to understand the election of November 2016 and the 63 million who voted for this faux billionaire for president and the millions more who will vote for him in 2020. And as of today, we can't say that he'll be defeated, I'm afraid to say. I don't think you can begin to understand that process without understanding how race and racism can help to foment class collaboration. Because if you look at the early settlers in the 1580s and what we now call Roanoke, North Carolina, or 1607 in what we now call Virginia, 
they're from diverse class backgrounds, but they feel they have a stake in the system of expropriating the Native Americans, and they feel they have a stake in the system that will allow them to become slave owners and profit from the sweat of African labor. Now, that may not happen, but that's what they think, and that's what drives them. And I don't think, once again, you can understand the torturous history of, of what becomes the United States up until this point without understanding this very close interplay uh, between and amongst religion, race, and class. Right, that class collaboration, right. <laughs> right, okay, well, I'll have to leave it there, but I want to thank Gerald Horn, author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. This is his latest book. And of course, you know, Gerald is our geopolitical analyst. And today we talk about geopolitics and history. So, you know, it all comes full circle. And Gerald Horn is our geopolitical analyst. Thank you for joining me again today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us, support us there, and also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at onthegroundshow. Our new podcast is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. That's On the Ground, W, Esther Ivarum. And that's on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Home Universe by Chick Corea, A Portrait of Doris Driving with Boris by EST, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.